Good morning, church. What's up? Hey, we're so grateful that you guys are here. And uh, today we are beginning a new series called At the Ready. And uh, the purpose of it uh, is so that you and I would be ready for all that uh, we're supposed to be ready for. And so I thought, you know what, maybe we'll kick this thing off and I'll find some really you know, clever illustration or story. And so I Googled it, like, what's it look like for us to be at the ready? And here's what I got, okay? Um, ladies, here's 10 things you need to know about your man before you're ready to marry him. Uh, and then next line, uh, ladies, here's six things that your man ought to do to prove that he's ready for you to marry him. Line number three, ladies, and everything was about ladies, make sure you find the man that's ready for you, you know, and uh, unfortunately, that's just not the direction we were hoping to head, and so uh, I don't have any great illustration for you to start out, but the purpose of At The Ready is so that you and I would be ready to give an answer to the hope that we have in Christ. The idea of it comes from 1 Peter chapter 3. And so as we were in the last series in 1 Peter, uh, if you look at uh, verse uh, 15 of chapter 3, it simply just says this, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason that you have the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so the idea really comes from this, is that for us in this room that we claim to want to know God or that we do know God and we want to share with others, the goal is to be able to give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ. And I would find that the fundamental thing that happens oftentimes in the life of us as Christians is that we are asked to do something for God. Like, for instance, somebody will come to you and they'll go, hey, uh, would you be interested in leading a journey group? And you go, no, 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 no. I don't know enough about the Bible. Or somebody would you know, approach you about a really hard conversation or a discussion and you go, I don't know, let me get you in touch with my pastor. And you'll reach out on behalf of someone else. And you'll go, I would love to go with you, but I don't have the answers. And God didn't design his word so that a handful of select people would understand it. But he designed the word so that all of us would be able to give an answer for the hope that we have in Jesus. And I would say that by and large, most of us that are in this room would say if we were asked some really difficult and challenging questions that we probably wouldn't be quite ready to answer them. And you go, well, what do you mean? Like, what kind of questions? Like, for instance, if somebody were to ask you, if your God is so good, then why does he allow so much evil and suffering in the world? How do you answer that? If people were to say, you know, if God loves me so much, then why is it that God would banish me to hell if he loves me so much? That doesn't make sense. Or maybe somebody would ask us, if God is all-powerful and he's all-knowing and he loves us as his creation, then why in the world would he allow a storm like Irma or Harvey to exist? See, those are really challenging questions. And those are all questions that are deserving to have some really biblical, you know, solid biblical answers to. And the question is, is, are there biblical answers? And if so, where do we find them? And naturally, as a pastor, I'm going to go, well, we find them in God's word. But here's a good question. How do we know that God's word can be trusted? Like, how do we know that it's reliable? After all, didn't a bunch of men write the Bible? And if a bunch of men wrote the Bible and they're fallible and sinful, then how in the world would we ever claim to say that God's word is infallible and that it's perfect in every way? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And so I thought in order for us to be at the ready, like in a moment's notice, ready to move, ready to be trained, ready to be strong, ready to go into action, we have to be able to know what God's word says. But I think in order to know what God says about the, 
most difficult, challenging questions that you and I may be faced with on a day-to-day basis from those that we work with, we got to know, first of all, is the Bible really able to be trusted? Is it reliable? And so I'm going to tackle that today and just help you to understand that there are several reasons that I believe the Bible can be trusted. And so I'm going to start out, and I'm going to give you some scripture. And I get it. Like, you're like, well, I don't get that. If you're going to, if you're going to try to prove the Bible's reliable, then why would you use scripture if we don't know that scripture can be trusted? Just hang with me, and I'm going to answer all of that. And so if you'll notice that the point of this message is not just to equip the believer, but maybe you're here and you're a skeptic, and you go, well, I've asked a lot of those questions. I've never really gotten solid answers. I hope that you'll join us over the next few weeks because this series is for everyone. And maybe you have some friends out there that you're like, they're knuckleheads, and they ask me the hardest questions, and they just get me all stirred up. Well, the reason you're stirred up is because you don't have adequate answers. And we don't have adequate answers, then guess what? We're squeezed. And when we get squeezed, what? Things come out, right? And so that's the key is to find solid answers. So let's pray for uh, together, and then we're going to dive in, okay? God, we love you. We thank you for today. We ask you would use this time for your glory and our good. And we pray, God, that you would reveal yourself to us through the word, but also, God, help us to just look at other evidence that would suggest that you are who you say you are and you will do what you say you will do. So, God, would you just use the next few minutes that we have together to make us strong, to train us up, to do whatever it is that you call us to do at a moment's notice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn with me. Uh, and I went to cur- turn a few different places. You're going to mark a few. So go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you're kind of new to church, you're like, I don't even know where that is. Well, it's in the New Testament, which is the, the latter part of your Bible. And so if you come to the New Testament, you're going to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the Gospels, the good news of Jesus, and all about his death, his burial, his resurrection, and all his life and ministry. And then you're going to come to a book called Acts, which is about the early church. And then you're going to have letters that were written by Paul. And so after Acts, you got Romans. And then after Romans, you got First. Corinthians. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and then uh, later on in the New Testament, you're going to come another book uh, called 2 Timothy. And so if you'll go to 2 Timothy, it's right after what? 1 Timothy. Good job. You are really sharp, okay? Um, and so it's going to be in a collection of T's. You got 1 and 2 Thessalonians, then you got 1 and 2 Timothy. And so if you go too far, you're going to end up uh, in Titus, okay? So go backwards. And then the last book that we need to look at is 2 Peter, okay? And that comes after what? First Peter, good job, okay? So if you'll grab those, I want to start with 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we'll look at 6 through 16. And I want you to just kind of read along with me. And if you don't have your Bibles, we'd love to bless you with one. You can go by our resource center as you leave today. We'd love to hand you one, or uh, we'll put it for you up on the screen. And in verse 6, it says, Yet among the mature we do not impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, we are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So in, in, in part, he goes, we have some truth that we would like to impart. And we want to impart this secret and it's a hidden wisdom of God. So it seems to be that it's a truth that not everyone seems to understand. And it's one that God has declared for his glory throughout the ages. Now, interesting enough, look at verse 8. Now, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. For instance, he goes, here is a word from God that's been given, 
And he says, if people understand the revealed word that seems to be a mystery, he goes, it's very clear that if everybody got it, they wouldn't have killed Jesus, right? Agree? And so then he goes on, he says, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Now you can underline that. Because the idea here of this text as Paul writes to this church in Corinth, is that whatever it is that we have that would, we would claim to be from God seems to be something that God has, what, revealed. Matter of fact, if you look, it says in verse 11, for, for who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So the idea is this, the only way that you would truly know someone is if someone wrote about what it was they were thinking. For instance, you and I could observe whatever they're thinking. And oftentimes we do that. We're like, oh my gosh, he's crazy. He must be out of his mind. But you really don't know if he's out of his mind because you're not in his mind. The only way you could ever know if somebody was out of their mind is if they were to tell you they were out of their mind. The only reason you know about a person is if they decide to autograph it or autobiography if they write and reveal themselves to you. That's the only way you can truly know that person. Now, what's interesting is, is that's what Paul is writing to this church in Corinth. The only way you and I know God is if God reveals himself to us. We don't have the intellect. We're not smart enough to figure out the mind of God. In our finite nature, we are not able to discern an infinite God. In our fallible and sinful humanity, we're not understanding how it is to be holy and infallible, to be a perfect God. And so we only understand God because in some way, he's revealed himself to us. And so the question is, is how does he reveal? Well, in verse 12, answers it. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So if you have your Bible, you could just make a little note out in the margin that God has to reveal himself. And that's what the Scripture is all about. It's about God revealing himself to mankind. Matter of fact, if you look at verse 14, it says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are, what, they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The only way you understand God is if God makes himself known. Got me? So you go, okay, that's great, but why? Like, what's the person? If God reveals himself, then why does he reveal himself? And, and what's the purpose of it? And how does he do it? And so in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writes to his buddy Timothy, and he answers the question for us in that second book. And he says, all scripture is breathed out by God. So if he's writing to the church of Corinth, and he's saying all of the Bible that you and I have is God's word revealed to man, then we need to understand that he reveals it as he inspires it. Matter of fact, that's what it says. All scripture is breathed out by God. What's the purpose of God revealing and inspiring? And here it is. So it'd be profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness so the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Matter of fact, if you just caught this, the reason for God's word to be revealed to you and inspired by him is so that you would be ready. 
for every good work. That whatever it is that God calls you to, in a moment's notice, you're ready to respond. That is the enemy attacks, the adversary comes to you, that you would be ready to respond, that you would stand firm, and that you would be adequately equipped with every good work through the word that has been revealed and inspired by God to you. Interesting? Now, Peter also, he writes, in the second Peter chapter 1, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, y'all, do y'all like what I did to you? I asked you to go to 1 Peter 2, and then I went to 1 Peter 1. Did you see it? Or did y'all see that earlier? No, y'all didn't even catch that. I, went, I think I said go to 1 Peter 2, or I don't remember. So for, in 2 Peter chapter 1, though, you see that it's interesting because he says, For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son. Now, Peter is writing, and he's writing about the transfiguration. And what he's saying is, he goes, I remember going, and I remember the encounter between God and his Son, Jesus. And he received honor and glory from God, and the voice came, and it was a majestic one. And what did it say? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard the voice from, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word. So what he says, he goes, I remember being on the mountain as God revealed himself, and I remember being there, and I remember him saying in a majestic voice that this is my son with whom I am well pleased. But he says, but God has given us something more. Even though I saw with my own eyes and I heard with my own ears about what God was doing, he has given us something more complete and more sure than that. And the question is, is what is it? He says it's a prophetic word to which you and I would do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is from someone else's own interpretation. And you could underline that. That scripture doesn't come from man, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now you may wonder, well, okay, why are you creating an argument with God's word if we don't even know if God's word could be trusted? And here's why I start out here. Number one, if you're going to begin to strengthen yourself, you need to realize that there was never a point where as Christians we should say man wrote it. Because man didn't write the Bible. What man did was interpret what God revealed and inspired. And so God reveals it, he inspired it, and he allows us to have a revelation inspired from him to translate. And so it's also translated as men are carried along by the Holy Spirit. Got me? And so that's the purpose of your Bible, to have a revealed, inspired truth carried along by the Holy Spirit interpreted and written down by men after they've received it from God. But here's the cool thing, is that that's not all we have. The only concrete evidence that we have of God's existence and the Bible is not merely just in the Bible, but it's actually compiled of four different things. And so one of the things that I think through is my own life and my own story. When I was about 20 years old, um, to be honest with you, I was a believer in Jesus, and I was in the church. Matter of fact, I was even serving within the church, but I didn't know my Bible. I, I didn't know my Bible. Matter of fact, I could hardly tell you the purpose of who Israel was. Like, I mean, I knew that 
that Israel existed, and I knew stories like you know Noah's, you know the flood, and I knew uh, of David slaying Goliath, and I knew all those stories that a boy should know because he grew up in church. But I did not know the purpose of the Bible, and I certainly had no place to defend it. And if somebody would ask me a really difficult question, I would have said something like this. I don't know, I just have faith, and I just believe it to be that way. But I didn't even know what my beliefs rested on. Like, I didn't know anything, and so I kind of went on a quest, and I began to discover, like, what is it that I believe? And do I believe what my parents raised me up in? Because that makes a lot of sense, right? I would believe exactly what my parents told me to believe. And oftentimes, we wonder why kids are leaving the church in droves, and the reason why oftentimes is because we have no answers for them. Like, we can't answer any hard questions because we don't have the answers ourselves. And if we're really vulnerable and when we really start looking at ourselves, we go, I don't know what I really believe. And so the question is, is do you believe the Bible simply because a pastor stands up here and gives you some scriptures and says, look, Paul says that, that this was revealed by God. Hey, look, Paul says it was inspired. Hey, look, Paul says this is useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. Hey, we should all believe that. And the answer is, is that's not why I believed it all. I believe it all because I began to go on a quest. And what I've discovered is, is something that many people have discovered along with me, before me, and that there are a few things that help us discover that the Bible is true. And there are four things that I believe that you could build all of the evidence on. And one of them is simply this, the Bible's production. Okay, the production of the Bible. You go, I don't understand what you're talking about, like how it is printed, how it's made. No, the production of it is this. It's how you and I received it. So if we know that the scripture says it was inspired and revealed by God to men, the question is, why did God do it the way he did? And how many men did he use? Did he, did he just have one man that wrote it all? Is there just one consistent theme or is there more than one thing? How does he do it? And here's what's interesting. Think about this. The Bible is made up of a collection of 66 separate books. Now, matter of fact, the reason you have the word Bible is because it comes from the word Biblia, which literally means books. And so the Bible is a compilation of 66 different books. In the very beginning, in Genesis, it starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Like, that's how it begins. And in Revelation 22, it says, behold... I am coming again. And Jesus declares that he's the Alpha and the Omega, and he's coming again as he reveals that to John, which was one of his disciples. So you have the book start saying, in the beginning, and then you have the clear ending when Jesus says, I'm returning. And you see this incredible picture of all that's taking place from Genesis to Revelation. But the question is, is was that just something that, that a handful of men sat around a campfire and dreamed up? Hey, we're going to come up with a mixture of really cool stories, and we're going to make some things out of mind, like Jonah getting swallowed by a big old fish, and, and uh, we're going to see guys call down fire from heaven. It's going to be awesome. Everybody's going to believe that. No, it's not how it works. Man is not smart enough to come up with this, and they certainly can't do it with so much unity in the midst of so much diversity. What I mean by that is this, 66 books, but they were written over a period of 1,500 years. 1,500 years on three different continents, Africa, Europe, and Asia, three different languages. You had Hebrew, you had a sprinkling of Aramaic and Daniel, and you had Greek in your New Testament. And then it was revealed to 40 different authors. Now think about the authors, though. I mean, you had guys that were fishermen. You had guys that were doctors like Luke. You had shepherds like Moses. And uh, you had 
you had a guy that was a businessman like Nehemiah. You had guys that were scribal in, in nature, like a Pharisee, like Paul. You, you had so many different distinct diversions of the d- different people that came together to make one unified story. I mean, think about this. Even on the continents, in, in the continents, you had so many different ethnicities and backgrounds, even civilizations. You had Israel and Egypt. You had Syria. You had Babylon. You had Persia. You had Rome. And sprinkled in that, you had the Moabites and the Amorites and the Philistines and all these different people looking into all this story. And God uses all of this to reveal unity and truth about who he is. And you go, that's really cool. I mean, why are you saying that? Like, what's the production part of it have to do? Well, here's why. If I were just to ask five of you to go and write a narrative about life and about what it meant and to bring you back after one year time, there would be parts of what you wrote that overlaid upon each other, but there would be parts of what you wrote that were distinctly different because of your cultural experience, because of your ethnicity, because of your background. And that would certainly be the case if we took not only five of you, but we sprinkled in you five with a handful of other people from three different continents. The reason why is because man in our own place cannot inspire such a consistent and unified truth. It has to be something that's outside of man because we couldn't do it, especially when Moses and Paul didn't know each other, especially when Nahum had no idea who Peter was, especially when John had no idea that, that Noah uh, would be a part of the story that Moses would write. Like you, do you see that? So you've got these distinct differences, yet you have something that's happening, and that is in the Old Testament that it was widely accepted and being circulated by A.D. 90. So within 60 years of Christ's death, you basically have the Old Testament and the Septuagint has been widely accepted in the church, and at the Council of Jamnia, it was already supported within 60 years of Jesus. Now, the Old, uh, Old Testament was already s- supported and been circulating, but by this time, 90 A.D., the Council of Jamnia, the New Testament would have been circulating as well. Now, although it was not eventually in terms of concreted down and supported by a council, it was widely circulated and people knew about it. But it wouldn't be until about uh, AD 367 at the Council of Athanasius that you would see that the New Testament would be supported and eventually fully canonized at the Council of Hippo at AD 393. Now, the reason I say that is because as we begin to look at something in a few minutes, you're going to notice how different there's the disparity between the New Testament and the Old Testament and the the time that it was written and inspired compared to the literary text that you have in your hand, the copies. We'll explain that in a second. But it's important to know that the production was unique. Got me? Like it doesn't happen like this in most compilations or book series. The second thing is the preservation, like the preservation of your Bible. Like how is it that you and I still have a copy of this after the first writings literally being thousands of years old. Like, how do you still have that in your hand? Especially when you have guys like Diocletian, the Roman emperor in 300, uh, 303 AD. He ordered the destruction of all Christian churches and all Bibles to be burned. And yet you still have a copy in your hand. Uh, there was a guy named Voltaire. He was a French infidel in the 1700s. In 1778, he said this, within 100 years of my death, the Bible and Christianity will be wiped off the face of the earth. Interesting enough, within 50 years of his death, the Geneva Bible Society was printing Bibles and other Christian literature in his home. 
Isn't that cool? That's how God has preserved it. It's not just how he produced it, but he preserved it. Now, preservation is not just this, that you have this in your hand. Preservation is more than that. Preservation also goes to this, that you and I have historical and archaeological stuff that goes with it. Now, let's just consider some of these. In 1960s, ancient Ebla, uh, in part of northern Syria, they came across 15 to 17,000 tablets that unveiled some of the ancient cities, and some of them are revealed in Genesis chapter 14 called the Cities of the Plain. Now, you may not think that's a huge discovery, except that up until that time in the 1960s, nobody had ever confirmed that the Cities of the Plain, cities like Sodom and Gomorrah, had actually existed until then. And they found that on all those tablets. In 1961, in Caesarea, on the Mediterranean coast, there was a limestone that was dedicated to Pontius Pilate. Up until that time, In 1961, no one believed that Pontius Pilate, the guy who was involved in the crucifixion of Jesus, ever existed until then. Um, You got other things, like 93, you have evidence of King David finally unveiled. Up until that point, King David, a significant part of historical uh, importance, but also in the life of Israel, but also in your Bible. Little had been mentioned until, uh, until 93. In 2004, you have the Pool of Siloam, who's unearthed in Jerusalem, and that had not been known to us for quite some time. But the awesome thing, too, is just regarding Assyria's capital, Nineveh. Think about this. In Nahum, which is a really significant thing, Nahum wrote uh, a prophecy, and he was writing this to the people of Assyria. And he's basically warning them that because of the way they've lived their life and because of them coming up against Israel, that they're going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And literally, in Nahum chapter 3, it basically, uh, between 1, 2, and 3, says, you're going to be remembered no more, you're going to be blotted out, nobody's going to remember you, your city's going to be destroyed, burned fire, and you're going to be just mowed off the face of the planet, is basically what the prophecy suggests. And I did a, a study in, in Nahum. What's, what's really cool is up until the 1840s, no one had believed that the, that the Assyrians had a city called Nineveh. And that certainly couldn't have been their capital because it had never been found. And in 1842, there were two men who dug that site open. And when they dug it, here's what they would realize. Number one, this city has been gone for a long time, just as Nahum said it would be, almost to never be discovered again. And when they finally discovered it, what they found is with that city lied in ruins, and it was literally feet of piles of rubble and dark ash, black, because of what? It was burned. That happened in 1842. And that next year, 1843, Isaiah 20 mentioned a king called Sargon, and they found the things about him as well in that same dig site in 1843. So that's evidence of who God is. And then you have archaeological support as well, not just historical, but archaeological. In 1947 through 1956, you have what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the Qumran community, which were caves that a Bedouin shepherd, as he was searching for his goat, came across a bunch of old fragments. And those fragments revealed that they were portions of our Old Testament. And they found in those fragments, called the Dead Sea Scrolls now in the Qumran community, every single fragment revealed that we had pieces of the Old Testament, and there are pieces that reflect the Old Testament except for one book, and that would be the book of Esther. And so you see all of this archaeological evidence, you see historical evidence, but it brings us to something else, and that is that it's not just uh, the idea of, of being preserved by historical and archaeological, but also literature, okay? And so 
in, in literature, you have basically what you call textual criticism. So let me explain it to you real quickly, and then I'm going to wrap all this up. Textual criticism based, is based off of the author, the original manuscript, and the numbers we have to overlay on top of the original manuscript. And so oftentimes, you don't have original manuscripts. All you have is an author, right? And so what I mean by that is a guy like um, Tacitus, a Roman historian. When he writes, he wrote about 100 years after Jesus. He's a guy who you'll hear, like Josephus, that wrote about Jesus and wrote about things that were happening in that culture. You don't have any original manuscripts. All you have are copies of the originals, and they, they began to circulate about 1100 AD. So if you do the math, that's 1,000 years after the original authorship. And so people would assume that because it has Tacitus' name on it and that he was a historian that day, that this must be his. But it was a 1,000 years after the original copy. So all you got is textual criticism. You take and you can see and read what you found a 1,000 years later and go, I think that's who that is. I think this is his writing. You do the same thing with Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, a 1,000 years after it was written. You do the same thing with Homer's Iliad. The thing is, is Homer's Iliad only has 12 manuscript copies, and they're all dated a thousand years after the fact. You've got Aristotle, who he wrote most of his stuff within about 300 uh, and 384 to about 322, so 300 years before Jesus. He wrote most of his stuff. You've got 49 manuscript copies, but the earliest that they were ever found was 1,000 to 1,100 years after Jesus. So 1,400 year discrepancy. No original copy. A heck of a long time of a gap, and then you've got some copies and manuscripts. And the copies and manuscripts are, what, 10 manuscripts of Julius Caesar, 20 manuscripts of Tacitus, 12 of Homer's Iliad, 49 of the Greek philosopher Aristotle. And then you come to your New Testament. And your New Testament, I told you earlier, was widely circulated with, within years of Christ. The Old Testament circulated within years of Christ, supported the Old Testament at 90 AD at Council of Jamnia, 363, 364, etc. Later on, within 300 years, basically, of their writings, and here's how many manuscript copies you have in the New Testament alone. 25,000 copies. So if you were taking Homer's Iliad, I could hold it in my hand. If I were taking um, Tacitus, I could hold it in my hand. If I were taking the New Testament alone, you have a less, lesser gap and you have a bigger pile of manuscripts, if I were to stack them one by one on top of each other, it would go over a mile high of New Testament manuscripts alone. Make sense? So there is more documentation and more reliability than other books that we would consider to be plausible copies of the original from other authorship. So that strengthens your backbone. And so you've got production, you've got uh, the idea of a preservation, but you also got prophecy. Prophecy is what confirms other things. I'll tell you that prophecy is not found in many other places. For instance, most religions are built off of philosophy. And so it's the idea of it is to give you philosophical ideas, not historical or prophetical ideals. Like you don't have a lot of hist history in the Quran. You don't have a whole lot of history in the Geneva Watchtower Society. You don't have a lot of history in the Book of Mormon. You have a lot of philosophy. Why? Because those that philosophize, they can philosophize a lot about a lot of things and they don't ever have to get anything wrong. Why? Because anybody can interpret it by their own mind. But when you start giving historical events, 
based off of prophecy, things that you said would come to pass and would be true, it kind of cha- changed the game a little bit. Matter of fact, the Bible has over 2,500 prophecies. 2,000 of them have been fulfilled. I'll tell you, the chances of just 48 prophecies coming true in the Bible would be like you winning the lottery 22 times in a row. That's pretty alarming, right? And some of you are like, well, pastor, I don't really play the lottery. Yeah, yeah, you do. You, you just don't pray about it, right? But you, you play it, and you don't ever tell me about it. But the, that, that's the idea, though. That's how incredible this is. Now, I'll tell you this. The Quran, the, really the one prophecy that you would find in it would be that Muhammad is going to return to Mecca, and it hasn't happened. Uh, you had Judge uh, Charles Taze Russell. He was the founder, uh, the chief president of the Geneva, uh, or not Geneva, the Jehovah's Witness and the Watchtower Bible Society. And he made multiple uh, prophecies about Jesus' return, all dating back to the late 1800s. And time and time and time and time and time again, he was wrong. And every single one of them that he ever prophesied was wrong. Why? Why is it that we should hold fast to the Bible? merely because of the prophecy alone. I love Sir William Ramsey. He is one of the greatest historians that there ever was. He even said this about Luke. He said, Luke was a historian of the first rank. And he says, he is one that could be placed among the greatest historians of all time. Why? Because your Bible is prophetic and it's historical. It's been preserved and produced by God on purpose so that you would see how incredible he is. And it should strengthen your backbone. And the last one is this, is just the power of the Bible. And I'll close with this, with just my story. The reason that I think you and I should be prepared to give an answer for other people, mostly, is because of the power the the Bible produces. It's Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive and active. You've heard this. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing soul and the spirit joins the marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The reason that you and I should believe the Bible to be true more than anything is because the Bible has a way of taking a man like me and showing him my sin. It shows me who I am. It shows me the holiness of God. It shows me that in my sin, in my depravity, in my finite nature, that God is infinite, that he's pure, that he's holy, and that he loves me enough that he would send his one and only son, the, the, the homoistal, the, the begotten son of God, the same stuff as God, to, to man on earth to give up his life, to bear a sinful death, that was, should have been rightfully mine, he lays his life down for me so that I may have new life in Christ. And as I live a new life in Christ, I'm not changed because I'm morally something special. Because I'm not. I'm changed because the Spirit's work in my life revealed to me by God through the truth of his word, which now shows me who I was in error against God and who God is and how he makes me right, although I'm constantly doing the same thing over and over and over again. And I'll tell you that if you're an agnostic or an atheist in here, or maybe you have a friend that is, and y'all have conversations about the Bible, and you go, you know what, this is really good stuff. And I love the fact that predictive prophecy has come true, because I use that all the time. And maybe you're here and you go, and I love the fact that the Bible's been preserved over time, and that even Voltaire, he would say it would be gone, and it wasn't. I love the things that you've given me. I love the fact that God produced it over a period of 1,500 years and 40 different authors and all the different backgrounds and society, all that. But I'll tell you, even if they have an answer for all those, the one thing they can't answer for is how you used to hang out together and you used to do things together. 
and you used to say obscene things about God, and you used to use his name in vain, and you used to say things like, there's no God, and man, we're going to die in hell together. But then one day, God revealed himself to you, and he changed your life. And you guys have been going separate paths ever since. And though you've had lots of great discussions, you can't seem to convince them. Well, the one thing that they can never argue is life change. They cannot argue how you once were one way and now you seem to be another. Why? Because there's nothing, nothing, no evidence in the world that can actually give credence to the fact of what God has done in your life. And so they cannot dispute that. And so is it important for us to know our Bibles and to be prepared in an instance to give a hope for what we have in Christ and to live our lives differently as a result of what we've discovered? And the answer is yes, because they cannot dispute life change and the power of the Bible in our lives. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for today, and I pray, God, that you would use all of these facts, all of this information to remind us of who you are. And, Father, we thank you, God, for all the ways that you have preserved the Bible. God, we thank you, Lord, for the way that you produced it through so many people, but yet to have such a unifying message in the midst of all the diversity. God, we thank you, Lord, for your prophecy. God, we thank you, Lord, that just in your son, there were almost 30 prophecies that came true in one 24-hour period. God, we thank you how much you have accomplished through your word. God, help us to know it, to read it, to live it, and to believe it. And God, help us be prepared and at the ready. Help us to stay ready, to have to keep from getting ready because of who you are and because of what your word gives us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.